1: Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 73 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard magazine. Wondering how the Death of Superman storyline would have turned out if the group editor for the books had been comedian George Carlin instead of Mike Carlin? I'm Adam. And making his first appearance on Wizards tonight is a man who once represented Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe in a hypothetical battle against Ninja from Valiant Comics and somehow avoided a fatal case of cerebral ninja awesomeness overload. From the Who Would Win and Knowing is Half the Podcast programs found on a podcatcher near you,
0: it's the one and only Ray Sticanus. Welcome, Ray! Hello, hello, all people of Wizard Nation. Is that what we call them? <laughs> They're just our our loyal geeks. <laughs> okay, we'll call them the Coven. No, that's witches. Uh, there's got to be a name in there. So I'm gonna work. I'm gonna workshop this. We'll call them the Robe Nation. That's what we're calling them now.
1: The crazy thing is, is Rob Liefeld's awesome entertainment at this time was publishing a comic called The Coven mm, <laughs> that is mentioned in okay. this issue. So there you yeah, go. I think it
0: all ties together. Then yes, yes, absolutely.
1: But you know, Ray, as a devoted listener of Knowing Is Half the Podcast and Who Would Win, this actually is a real treat for me. And the thing is, I know in listening to your show over many years that you, along with your co-host, Robert Clark Chan or Gina Ippolito, you guys are comic book readers. It's constantly mentioned back and forth, but we got to know how it all started. So, Ray, why oh, don't wow. you tell us your origin story? Yeah.
0: It's going to be pretty crazy because it's going to tie right in with knowing it's half the podcast. The first comic book I picked up right off the shelf was... G.I. Joe, 1980s Larry Hama style. Uh, I remember the cover. I want to say it was issue 26, maybe 24. It's the one that has uh, Zartan on the cover, and he's on this, like, uh, a, what do you call it? A hovercraft-like thing. Uh, I, I I should not remember the name of it. I totally don't. But it's a, it's got a lot of yellow in the background, and it's an image that's burned into my head, even though I can't come up with any details at this moment. And I often on read G.I. Joe as a young kid, although I think some of the themes in it were a little above my head for being uh, very, very young. But that was my introduction to comic books. Also, my dad got me into gaming. He got me into comics. He got me into nerd life. He is a full-fledged nerd. And he had Spider-Man going all the way back to issue like seven. And he had issues like seven through like 65 or something like that. And he had them with no protection at all in a brown paper bag in a cabinet in our basement. And I would go down there as a kid and read through all these old, old Spider-Mans trying to not ruin them like he had been doing. And it took many, many years to convince him that maybe bags and boards for these would be a good idea.
1: Wow. That is wild. So then obviously, you know, as the nineties roll around, we get the big boom, comic books are big business. Were you then like going with your dad to the comic book store or how was that working for you?
0: Nothing like that. He, he read comics as a kid and he had comics. He respected comics, but he sort of fell off with comics hmm. um, They're back. I mean, I grew up in uh, Livonia, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. And there was a place called Classic Movie and Comic Center, I believe, right there on Middle Belt Road. I don't even know if it's still there. I've been in Los Angeles now for a long time, uh, but I used to go there and get subscriptions. This is the early 2000s, though, uh, when I had come back and moved home after going to school. And yeah, uh, comic books have always been an off and on part of my life, basically when I could afford them. That's when I would. That's when I would be heavy into comics, and then I'd be broke for long periods of time where I wouldn't be reading as much. Well,
1: that's great. Yeah, this is this is exciting because I I think a lot of what we're talking about here is going to start uh, jogging some memories for you for wow. sure. But you know, here's the thing: a lot of people back in the day, if you didn't live near a major comic book store, you had to mail away. And at uh, speaking of mail, I think it's wow. time we open up Willie Lumpkin's mail bag. So our first letter here this time around is from Nikki Nixter Davis of Baraboo, Wisconsin. I guarantee he or she gave themselves uh, that particular name. I'm the Nixter. Come on, everybody. But let's read this letter here. It's kind of interesting. Dear Jimmy Poo, Number one, your magazine has two different covers. Is this a direct market newsstand thing or a variant cover thing? And two, if you went into a store wearing shoes and a shirt but no pants, would you still get service? Those signs say nothing about pants. So, uh, Jim McLaughlin responds here first, it's both, or neither, your choice. Basically, we like to run covers once in a while, like the Preacher cover on Wizard number 71, for instance, that are not recognizable to the more general newsstand audience. The newsstand responds well to Batman and Spider-Man and stuff, but probably wouldn't recognize Preacher if he popped up in their soup. Still, Preacher is pretty darn cool, and we know that Comic Shop crowd will respond well to Preacher, so we do a Batman cover for the new Stanford Wizard 71 and let Comic Shops order their choice of Batman or Preacher covers. Number two, you sound like someone who's been arrested at least once, (laughs) not wearing pants in public. Ray, you? Uh,
0: Listen, I will just say from personal experience, 7-Elevens prefer you wear pants. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say.
1: Uh, usually a safer idea. All right. Uh, and the next letter here Tyler Friedenreich from my hometown of Irvine, California is writing in to ask number one, if the spandex suits that super characters wear show every crevice of the bicep and each muscle of the abdomen, why don't they show underwear lines? Or do heroes go commando
0: while saving the universe? That's a great question.
1: And number two, most importantly, why in the heck aren't there any nipples on the Batgirl costume in the new Batman and Robin movie? Both the male yeah. heroes show theirs.
0: You're telling on yourself
1: now. Yeah. So the first response here, would somebody please explain to me what the hell going commando is and where that term came from? Jim McLaughlin didn't know about going commando. Come on. That was well known by the nineties. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, number two, methinks the movie would go straight from PG-13 to NC-17 in no time flat.
0: Yeah, there's very reasonable reasons why you wouldn't put that on there in the prudishly Puritan country of America that we all live in. Well, not all of us, but we do, the (laughs) two of us. And uh, yeah, you'd get in trouble if you started rocking like that. Uh, All of a sudden you go from family-friendly romp to... Uh, suggestive cinema and you don't want that playing in the bible belt not
1: at all and i'm sure if there was an nc-17 batman film to hit theaters it would definitely make the
0: headlines so ray we're gonna get into our <laughs> wizard news right. i didn't know what, what was going on back in september of 1997
1: We are going to catch you up. So our top story this issue, Lobdell Maderera to Leave X Titles, is confirmation of the many clues that seem to be dropped during interviews with the writer and artist of Uncanny X-Men in recent issues of Wizard. Joe Maderera, who is ranked number one on the Wizard Top Ten Artist list this issue, explains the reason for his departure from the most popular series in comics. Quote, I don't think I'm doing my best work on Uncanny anymore, so it's better to move on. I'm looking to do a creator-owned project, probably late 96, or early 98 so joe matterera is that a name that stands out to you ray
0: no honestly and this is one exciting thing for me i've just recently say in the last like year or so gotten back into comic books again after a little time away and i'm aware of some names mostly writers not very much with artists and I know that the people and your audience, for sure, who's so very heavily deep into this, like on a level that I am jealous of, quite honestly, um, they know the names of all the inkers, all I, the whole thing. Everybody knows everybody. They they find the people whose work they like. They seek it out, and it's kind of what makes the hobby very fun: is is finding your groove and then and then rolling in it. I've always followed authors, writers more than others, just because it's easier for me as a writer and someone who cannot draw and do any kind of artistic thing like that whatsoever. It's easier for me to understand the craft of the writing And so I appreciate it, I guess, more. And then the rest of it's just beautiful art that I have no idea how they did any of it. They may as well have waved a magic wand.
1: (laughs) I'm very much on the same wavelength here. So let's see how we relate to Scott Lobdell, who is the writer of the X-Men books. He was abandoning the X-Mansion to write Fantastic Four, and he provides a very Seinfeldian logic for his decision. Quote, I've been writing X-Men for seven years, and it's just time to move. Personally, I think the books have been really good lately, and I want to go out on a high note
0: no it makes sense look if you're in the creative fields no matter how good it's going and no matter how much money you're making and how well you're chugging along there comes a point where you just want to do something else and i get it
1: Yeah, and Joe Kelly is the one who's going to be taking over the writing on the adjectiveless X-Men book. While a name very familiar to all of you over on Knowing is Half the Podcast, you just mentioned him, Larry Hama, Mm -hmm. is going to be taking over for Lobdell on Generation X. And says Hama of getting the gig, quote, I spent 14 years on G.I. Joe before I could convince an editor that I could do something other than military stories. So (laughs) writing the Gen X team should be a good change
0: now have you guys had larry on your podcast no we never have we have no contact larry i'm on his facebook fan page mm-hmm. that he's very active on quite honestly and that's very cool to see we should have larry on it's tough though because we focus mainly on the tv shows right and the movies and he is predominantly just the comic books although he did write one of the short films that we just did oh gosh which one was it ninja battle spy troops Uh, I think it was Spy Troops. He he wrote one of them that we just did on the show, and it was wonderful. He's a great writer, it turns out. Who knew?
1: Yeah, and if you guys, uh, just another plug for knowing as half the podcast, if you're at all interested in what went into making that show, they've had some great interviews with, like, Buzz Dixon and just all these wonderful people that were involved in putting it together over many years. So it's it's fascinating. Uh, But, Ray, let me just ask in general, what has been your relationship with the X-Men titles? Like, did you have a favorite creative team or era of the series where you got into X? x-men
0: it's so funny i've picked up a comic book here and there but truthfully i've never really followed the x-men comic books you know i've we'll talk about it in a bit there's another mutant who i do pick up trades for all the time um but i i was a huge fan of the 90s x-men cartoon show which should come as no surprise to anybody who knows what i do Uh i love the uh, show I, I love the fact that we got a wonderful chat with some of the creators of that show on knowing us half the podcast as well as the Who Would Win show. And so I, it's just, I really am a big fan of the property. I love the movies. I love the cartoons. I can't say I really followed the comics. I more so enjoyed when they adapted it into the the live action.
1: Yeah, and that's similar for me, where I I would dip in and out just to check it out, and it's never hooked me. I've never found a take on the X-Men that is just like, oh, this is great, I love it. The soap opera aspect does not appeal to me. That's what a lot of people say. Oh, you get to know the characters. I'm like, "Eh, not in this case, I don't think.
0: (laughs) Right. It's not like I don't like the X-Men. Like, I love so many of the X-Men, and I like the ideas of some of the stories. But you're right. Sometimes there's just too much going on. It's a bit like I also don't really read the Avengers titles. Uh, For similar reasons, it's tough for me to kind of keep track of everybody and what they're doing over the course of a a comic book because I read very, very slow, as you already uh, found out. (laughs) And so I put it on a screen. And let me watch it.
1: Speaking of creators who left Marvel's X-Universe behind, in the wake of being terminated from or abandoning the Heroes Reborn Captain America series, depending on who you believe, Rob Liefeld announces that his awesome entertainment imprint has acquired the publishing rights to Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's patriotic hero, The Fighting American. Now, this is despite the fact that Awesome had just announced in a previous issue of Wizard their plan to publish the adventures of an original shield-slinging patriotic hero named Agent America. Explains Liefeld, quote, Basically, we're taking the concept we had for Agent America and tweaking it to fit the fighting American. I know people thought that Agent America was just stuff I had in a drawer for my time on Captain America. This is 100% new material. And if you believe that, geeks, we have some (laughs) swampland to sell you in Florida, which may or may not be inhabited by the man thing, who, if published by Rob Liefeld, would be a wholly original concept called Masculine Item. Yes, (laughs) I like that. Those who feel fear burn at the touch of masculine item. Okay. <laughs> now let me ask you about this. What is your familiarity with the comic book output of Rob Liefeld?
0: This is what I was alluding to earlier. Uh, <laughs> I love me some Deadpool. I am a, I'm a big fan of dead. It's so funny. I'm going to shout out David Knoll on the show. He was best man at my wedding uh, inspiration for some of the uh, vampire uh, audio drama stuff I've been doing, but he is deeply into comic books more than I've ever dreamed of being and I used to love it when he told me stories of things that happen in comics because I thought it was the greatest, most creative thing ever. And he is an excellent reader and could relay these things very well. Uh, He, I said, there are comic books back in the 90s. I said, I want to say late 90s. I said, I want to get back into comics again. What, I don't know anything about anything, uh, basically. And he suggested a handful of titles to me. And that was Deadpool, who at the time I didn't know who that was. uh, A title called Hitman. Uh, which uh, was a lot of fun, uh, that first issue especially, where he barfs on Batman when he gets punched in the gut, <laughs> one of the top five iconic moments in all of comics to me. Um, and, he, and he tried to get me into, like, Green Lantern and The Flash, because those are his two favorite characters, but I was just not having those. I like weird stuff, it turns out. So I go back to Deadpool back in the late 90s, Since then, I I collected a whole bunch of different trade paperbacks. I just, I like reading me some Deadpool. I like playing Deadpool in video games. I just, I just, like two weeks ago, bought Deadpool 1 and 2 on sale from Apple TV. I'm bragging a little bit. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Deadpool stuff, though.
1: There you go. All right. Well, he is a big
0: fan of himself in creating
1: Deadpool. So, yeah.
0: Huge showman. Like, look, you know, talking to Rob Liefeld, and if I have not, but hearing him in interviews, he's very much... Uh, a showman he's very much a salesman and the product he is selling is himself and he is doing it 24 7 and you should never really believe at face value anything he says at any point but the proof is in the work and he does excellent work and you know if you're reading a rob liefeld you're going to get something interesting even if it's not what you thought you were getting
1: yeah it may not last long but that first issue you a lot of people are going to buy it so all right uh, now Back. next item here though ray Marvel Mania theme restaurant opens in California, explains that the Planet Hollywood-style Marvel Comics restaurant will finally be opening in August of 1997 at Universal Studios Hollywood. Quote, besides walls decorated with tons of Marvel merchandise, the restaurant is flooded with high-tech special effects, including lighting and lasers, which is what you want while you're eating, to project the feeling of actually being in a comic book. That's how, when I I feel like I could be in a comic book, I feel like lasers would be shooting at me all the time. But as a high school sophomore, Ray, I was taken to this restaurant by my older, cooler senior friends. They had cars, and they thought it'd be so awesome to take me here. I think it was open like only like a year or two, but it was amazing. There were Costume Marvel yeah. characters visiting your table, reproductions of weaponry. There are all sorts of Marvel Universe paraphernalia around.
0: Did you know this restaurant existed? Not at all. This is the fir- I was reading this, and it's the first time I had ever become aware of it. Look, like, there have been some wild restaurant ideas out there, and some still exist. But I'm thinking of, like, you know, the Pastamanias. Hulk Hogan's pasta mania and <laughs> in the mall of America, I believe like there have been some very interesting themes and I'm reminded because in the uh, uh, justice league mortal, which is the audio drama justice league, audio drama uh, fan made uh, that I just was in uh, playing a, a small character named Batman. Uh, there is an actual restaurant there run by Maxwell Lord, who's the big bad of the movie. And it is a superhero themed justice league restaurant where it's like you buy like a flash burger and fries and a and a you know Batman chicken sandwich or whatever the heck it is. And as soon as I read that, I was like, this is exactly that. Uh, also it's wild to think that it failed back in 97 and 98. It didn't, it didn't go anywhere, but now you can actually go to Disneyland at least here in Los Angeles or Anaheim, you know, and you can actually go to, you know, I went to Hank Pym's Ant-Man Kitchen which is like a wild thing where all the food is inappropriately sized. And uh, it's wonderful. Uh, What a delight. So the idea is still around. I had no idea this place was a thing, though.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a flash in the pan uh, at the end of a trend, but it was still a very cool thing. And just so people understand a little bit more, this Justice League Mortal Project, you guys took the unproduced script, right, that that we were supposed to see, this movie that was, you know, instead we got the awesome Mad Max Fury Road, but it was George Miller was developing the Justice League prior to that, and you guys brought it to life. So if people are interested in that, uh, go check it out.
0: Yeah, you could just search for Justice League Mortal. Uh, you can also—it's on the Club the Dial Up Movie Club podcast—is the name of the of the uh, network. Uh, or you could just find me on Twitter, and there'll be links on there somewhere. Search my Twitter for Batman; you'll find it. <laughs> Hashtag Ray is Batman. There you it's go. True. I couldn't believe it when I got cast, and I guess uh, apparently, just according to when as we record this today they're working on a spin-off Nightwing uh, property, and they just did the thing where you go on Twitter, and you say, I'm looking for voice actors, and then 90 billion people flood the uh, thing, because that's how voice acting works in the year <laughs> 2023. Well, and
1: speaking of voice acting, and very familiar voices, Ray, our next item here, Mystery Science Theater star makes comics debut. Reports yes. that Trace Bilyeu, who played Dr. Clayton Forrester and was the voice of the original Crow T-Robot on Mystery Science Theater 3000, has written a one-shot comic for Dark Horse called Here Come the Big People. Oh, boy revolves around a lonely dude's personal ad being accidentally beamed into outer space where it's intercepted by a space alien who answers the plea for love in person. But as this item goes on to explain, quote, There's just one problem. She's 20 feet taller than the rich geek. Soon after, large women start appearing all over the planet looking for men to baby. And when Ooh. these women baby their men, they actually get younger. So this is just if there was ever an argument that comics are merely a platform for white men to indulge their feminine i think this is it um this
0: is exhibit a your honor uh look, <laughs> i said before somebody was telling on themselves uh trace is telling on himself with this idea uh let's just keep it real this is one that probably should have just stayed in his brain uh and not been unleashed upon the world uh this is purely the purview of a creepy old man who is letting the cat out of the bag about his creepy old manhood just watch that weird anime stuff and we don't need this trace
1: Grace, we love your work, but yeah, let's stick to the the riffing on movies. Let's do that. Um, Yeah. Now, finally here, Ray, the Wizard News section in this issue contains a survey of Wizards America Online users asking, who is the most intelligent man in the Marvel Universe? Uh, No mention of intelligent women being in the mix. Uh, We'll talk about that. But uh, (laughs) so here's how it played out. Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four won overwhelmingly with 53% of the vote, while his rival, Dr. Victor Von Doom garnered a mere 16%. Tony Stark scored just 9%, with Bruce Banner and his nemesis, the leader, tying at 7%. And old Ant-Man himself, proprietor of his own restaurant, Hank Pib, received a measly 6%. And then 2% of the vote went to the other category. So let me ask, Ray, of this list, is there someone you would have given your vote to? Is there someone missing from the list? What's your thoughts? Nice.
0: There is somebody missing from this list. He didn't even show up in the other category those names either. The most intelligent human is MODOK. What are we even talking about right now? He's a human with like a robot brain. Uh, infused in there. He's definitely smarter than Reed Richards. He's definitely smarter than Dr. Doom. Hank Pym, he is easily the smartest human. Now he's altered, but which of them isn't in one way or another, for gosh sakes, you know? Uh, Beyond that, though, I I would argue that Dr. Doom is a little bit smarter than Reed Richards because he was able to tap into occult magical forces and Reed sticks to the purely scientific, which means that Dr. Doom is a little bit more well-rounded in what he can do and expanding the limits of it. Eh, you know reed richards is what was what the people would say though right that's what the folk would say <laughs> he's got the best pr campaign you're so
1: smart reed we love you reed yeah. we love that big brain you know that's you know, what the thing's always calling him
0: let's face it He's he's rich he's kind of smart but he surrounds himself with a whole bunch of yes men sounds like <laughs> some other people in this world i could name
1: now, also, I just want to mention this because there, there were no women on this list. They didn't ask who was the smartest person in the Marvel Universe. But just in comics in general, if you had to vote for who was the most intelligent woman, and I think here they're looking more for, like, scientific prowess, engineering yeah, no. prowess. Yeah. No, only
0: one name. Only one name. And it's not scientific. I don't base it. Who's the smartest? It's, who's smartest? Not who's the most well-schooled, who creates the best inventions. The answer is, of course, Squirrel Girl is the smartest woman in all of... of marvel comics because she figured out a way to beat you know thanos she figured out a way to beat galactus she figured out a single-handedly she could beat goku and she can do it as long as she gets them off the page as long <laughs> as she gets them off screen she can take them out in my mind that's the smartest Oh, wow.
1: See, that's clever. Now, I kind of have my vote. My I throw my hat in the ring to represent the one and only Jennifer Walters, the She-Hulk. Why? Very smart. Very smart. She's a lawyer, but also she has broken through dimensional. Like, she, she's True. thinking outside the box, literally, of the page. She can interact with other beings that are observing her actions in comic book form. So I think there, there's something else going on there.
0: If we were to go, I guess, modern era, you know, you could also argue uh, what Luna, Lafayette, Moon Girl uh, probably scientifically would at least rank uh, very, very highly. In fact, she rated smarter than Bruce Banner using Bruce Banner's own uh, IQ measuring test, right? Uh, The only person who's ever solved the puzzle was Bruce. And she did it in about three seconds, you know, and it took him a while. So I, I would argue that right there, but you're right. Jennifer Walters, if you, if you watch the She-Hulk TV show, which I very, very much enjoyed, I thought, it was, uh, I thought it was wonderful, very much in keeping with the comics. You know, a lot of times we hear people complain, this isn't enough like the comics. So they make about the most faithful She-Hulk adaptation physically possible under the sun, And then you get other people complaining. I don't get what this is. It's like, because it's exactly like the comics, you weirdo. She actually, (laughs) didn't she like go and find like Kevin Feige? Yeah. (laughs) Like, like, this is outrageous. That's what She-Hulk would do. Yeah, I-, I love that call. I love that call. Yeah,
1: it was fantastic. And so, I, and I'll just say, there definitely has been a course correction in the 21st century where the intelligence of the female characters is put to the forefront, especially like, you know, getting into the MCU and stuff. But you have, you know, uh, Shuri for Black Panther and Riri, oh, you know, Ironheart, all of that. So it's great to see that that is happening now. But definitely in the 90s, everybody's just thinking, guys are smart. Who's the smartest guy? But Ray, we're pretty smart guys too. I think we have some more opinions to show well that might be debatable Look, actually having but... having
0: opinions and being smarter often two very different things <laughs> yes but
1: uh, we're gonna get into our table of contents love it so Ray Issue 73 of Wizard with a September 1997 cover date featured both newsstand and direct market covers as discussed on the letters page. Now the newsstand version was adorned with Wolverine as drawn by X-Men artist Carlos Pacheco, while the direct market cover featured a rollerblading Miho from Frank Miller's Sin City as drawn by the creator of that series now. Originally Ray was actually intended to be a Nightwing cover, but that was pushed to Issue 74 when Frank Miller agreed to provide this artwork at the last minute. He yeah. was actually made the guest of honor at the first Wizard World Chicago that they were in charge of.
0: You get Big Frank on board, you're not saying
1: no. Now, the issue came packed with a wizard chromium card of Dark Child. Ever heard of Dark Child? No, I have not. No idea. Okay, a Spawn movie trading card, poster of the Invisibles from DC Comics, Helix line, soon to be Vertigo, and then it was backed by a Brian Douglas Ahern calendar with all the fun cartoony illustrations. An order form from Wizards of the Coast, which was actually kind of like like a contest entry form they wanted you to do a survey and of course ray the ever-present america online subscription <laughs> disc
0: i can't express in high enough terms how those were everywhere back in the day everywhere you went you'd be inundated they would literally mail them to you daily uh, i mean this is people uh, in the year 2023 cannot appreciate how pervasive and aggressive america online was back then
1: Yeah, it was wild, man, everywhere. But inside the magazine, there was also a mail-away offer for a Sin City half issue. And speaking of which, the first cover story of issue 73 of Wizard is a very interesting feature called Sin City Classified, which is basically just composed photographs of police documents that are mocked up to look like they're strewn about the desk at a police station. It has profiles on Sin City characters and locations. There's like used ashtrays and shot glasses just sprinkled throughout to set the mood. It's a very artistic experiment. It actually taught me a few things I didn't know before, but uh, generally speaking, Ray, what was your opinion of this piece and just of the Sin City franchise?
0: Uh, look, Sin City is absolutely I mean, wonderful. Sin City is great. Now, I never got into the... I was very intimidated by The comic books. I was always afraid, like I would be starting in the wrong place. That's often a problem I have with comics: is knowing if if it doesn't say number one on the cover, I'm terrified. I'm buying it mid-story, or I don't. I won't know what's going on, and I'll just be lost. So I have a hard time just buying issues. It's got to be storylines that's why i like trade paperbacks so much when i do go purchasing i mean i still buy regular issues too another point is, but i like sin city i thought it was a really really fun movie back in the day you know robert rodriguez uh was a fantastic director you know el mariachi was a big inspiration to all of us who ever went to film school back in the 90s uh and then desperado and he's obviously done a bunch of other stuff since then but uh we we love him and he's just stylistically it was a it's a kind of movie that was not being made back then if you drop the movie sin city in 20 Twenty three. I'll keep dating when this uh interview takes place. Uh, but if you if you keep putting if you put this movie in today, it would not feel out of place at all. It would feel like a normal way that movies just get made now. But back when that thing came out, back in the day, that was very different than anything that you were really seeing before anywhere. You know, uh, it was kind of aping off this Quentin Tarantino kind of style, this very kind of dark, moody comic book atmosphere, and it had very very famous people in it doing really outrageous things. And it's just not a thing that was done back then. And I think was very influential, especially when you look at like the Zack Snyder movies of today and how Watchmen came out. I think heavily inspired, obviously.
1: Yeah, like you say, when you talk about translating directly from the page, that's 100% what Sin City was. The good news is, Ray, if you ever want to give it a shot, really- all of Sin City, like, I know they were coming out as individual issues, but, like, it, they're kind of self-contained each part of the story, like, because it okay. jumps back and forth so much. So I, I feel like you, you get your money's worth even from a single issue. There's always just, like, kind of a movement. You're like, okay, this this happened, and I'm sure there's more to come, but I get what happened here. So, That's great. Uh, okay. I, Frank Miller in general, like, is he, like, when you think about, like, his work on Batman or Daredevil sure. or anything else, are you familiar, or is he someone who you're just kind of, like, you know his reputation?
0: No, I've read some of his Batman uh, work, obviously, like, you know, he, he's done some of the most famous Batman stories of all time, right? Batman Year One. I've read Killing Joke more recently. Obviously, Frank Miller inspired what Batman was to become uh, years and years later. Now, our next one here, this is going to be fun. On the cover, Wolverine, they were showing some heads
1: behind him. Of various costumed characters, like you know, you have like Hank Pym as yellow jacket, the Havoc with the rings on his head, and Jack of Hearts, and all these different characters did, and that was the Wizard Staff picking kind of their favorite obscure costumes. So this piece here called "Dress for Success" had the Wizard Staff ranking their top ten comic book character costumes that they felt were the best in history, but they were using input from celebrated artists, people like Alex Ross and Walt Simonson and John Romita Sr. among many. The others so the some of these rankings though ray when we look at them are very suspect and there are kind of certain omissions that appear to be made simply for the sake of controversy one might say oh, number yes. 10 on the list here ray jack okay. in the box do you have jack any in form of box. reference for jack in the box
0: no this is an embarrassing outfit what are they talking about like uh, <laughs> what's wild is when we get to the 10 duds these are the duds are some of the most iconic outfits in the history of comic books and they dare put jack in the box a character i just found out about who he you know what i'm a big fan of uh, the insane clown posse and it's (laughs) like what if somebody threw up on the insane clown posse that's what jack in the box would look like
1: yeah this is wild now uh, obviously they were very high on kurt busick they loved him as a comic book writer and this was his creator-owned astro city comic and the character was written very well but in anybody else's hands This looks ridiculous. And this is what they had to say when they asked Alex Ross, who helped design the costume. He said, Jack in the Box is basically the Spider-Man character of Astro City. I think the design works and that visually he's a clown character, but not too clownish. He doesn't look like he's going to make balloon animals. He He still looks like a superhero character.
0: (laughs) No, look, he's got a head like Bozo the Clown. He's wearing a red spandex outfit with green diamonds all over it. He's carrying a purse. I don't know what this guy's deal is. <laughs> I don't know anything about Astro City honestly. And this is a this is a blank spot for me in my yeah. comic book frame of reference. But no, you're just wrong, Wizard staff. <laughs> All right, well, give us number 9 here, Ray. Number nine, Union Jack. Now, okay, this guy's pretty rad. They, they, they say that continuing the identity that's three generations old, Joseph Chapman is England's answer to Captain America, wearing his country's flag proudly on his uniform. He has no powers, but is an excellent hand-to-hand combat and marksmanship because he would better be if he doesn't have any powers. Uh, you know, this guy right here, he's... He looks, I mean, he's basically, he's got the head to toe snake eyes, uh, you know, ask ninja spandex outfit. Looks like the green man from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but instead of green, it's black with the uh, Union Jack cross uh, on his chest. Honestly, uh, this is pure 90s right here. This is not a character that would come out of any other decade. I I give it up for him. Uh, It's fine. It's fine.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if iconic of all time belongs on this list. All time, you know, again, wizard staff, you're getting a little wild on us. (laughs) All right, well, number eight is, oh, the one and only Thor, God of Thunder, okay? Now, yes, I mean, it's it's very stylized and very good looking. You're going to pick him out in a crowd. Let's see what they got from Walt Simonson, who was writing Thor's adventures all through the 80s. He says, it was kind of a modern graphic interpretation of Viking outfits done in the traditional superhero mode. With the kind of wrappings around the leggings and the wigged helmet, it was a cross of what Vikings actually wore and what everybody thought they wore. War for many years there's a nice historical quality and a really nice graphic quality and the costume kind of splits the difference between them i don't imagine any viking was wearing blue bright yellow and red
0: uh, no look it's a very iconic outfit thor i'm gonna be <laughs> honest in 1997 thor wasn't cool uh thor is cool now thor is cool today because of the mcu thor back then was you know nobody cared about thor and it's it's a crazy thing to think about knowing where we are today but back in 1997 only the realest real ones knew who tony stark iron man was yes yeah there's a reason why when uh, marvel tried to sell like what in the mid 90s uh, nobody would buy them because they were like nobody gives two craps about the avengers who you think you're actually going to make movies with iron man Thor, Ant-Man, Hawkeye. No, nobody cares about, only people is care about Spider-Man and then maybe the X-Men. And and wow, people were so dumb back then. They just didn't understand.
1: Not at all. All right, well, take us into number seven here, Ray.
0: Number seven, look, I got, I, I like me some Hawkeye. This is a ridiculous outfit though. Like I like a much more, I like, you know, the Hawkeye from the MCU, the way that they did up Jeremy Renner is a really sharp, sleek cool way to do hawkeye what this is is kind of a clown suit if i can be honest with you the uh, professional opinion says what a cool character says kurt busiak busik i don't know the most recently wrote the archer in untold tales of spider-man number 17 hawkeye's costume is the costume of a physical character no it's not he's wearing curtains <laughs> he's wearing curtains on his pant legs he's wearing curtains around his waist his, his uh, headpiece is too big to be reasonable. And the only piece of skin showing is his nose, mouth, and eyes. The most vulnerable areas on the body. This is a silly looking outfit. The purple and kind of black do work together as a color scheme very, very well. They don't work well when you're wearing them with curtains yeah i mean it, here's my
1: main issue is just as with captain american why are you putting a letter on your forehead i don't know why well, the marvel characters it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's the main thing that's that's just knocks me out every time i'm just like nope you ruined it you had a good thing going you ruined it but uh number six here is the flash they're so talking about silver age barry allen flash first and foremost the character is a runner so the costume had to make him look like a runner says flash designer and longtime artist karma Mine infantino. The costume was simplicity itself. There was no encumbrance. The stripes on the belt and the wrists were put on to convey the feeling of speed, and they would look like a lightning bolt when he ran. The wings on the mask and the boots were there to enhance the look of speed when he ran. All in all, I think the simpler it is, the better.
0: He's right. Yeah, I can't argue either. Look, this is a sleek red outfit. Red, as uh, any Warhammer 40k orc player will tell you, makes them go faster. The yellow boots and the yellow uh, secondary color work very, very well with the red. There's nothing to make fun of except for maybe those dorky looking uh, earpieces that he wears. Aside from that, though, the symbol is iconic. Uh, The sleekness is iconic. And this is what a character named the flash should look like. I I agree with them a thousand percent on this one.
1: I mean, unless he's going to be nude, then you're literally the flash, but
0: Um, that's a different kind of comic book. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ray, who's up next? Number five, my favorite comic book character of all time. You got to go with big Frank Castle, the Punisher. And it's crazy because whenever I walk into a new comic book store and they, I say, I want to get a subscription. They're like, what titles do you want? I say, look, I want GI Joe and I want the Punisher. But don't look at me like that. I'm not that guy. <laughs> Those just happen to be my two favorites walking in the door. I love the Punisher. It's hard to do the Punisher wrong, although this new series hitting comic books is trying very, very hard to do so. Oh, I'm holding back judgment until I see. I mean, we're about 10 issues in at this point. Um, I'm, I'm going to see exactly where it goes. I'm not. I haven't read. I own them all. I have not read them all yet, so I'm not there. But uh, look, Frank Castle's one of the coolest characters of all time. I love the fact that he comes from the grittiness of what, the 1970s? And just what he represents. Every single time the culture gets gets gritty, every time the culture gets dark, you get a new iteration of the Punisher that kind of comes out of that stew. And I love it. Look, the Punisher's outfit is rad, much like the Flashes. He's wearing all black, death with a white skull and white gloves. And he's got a lot of guns. Like, what is there not to love about the Punisher, you know? Now, the
1: one thing that they point out here, because they they ask Chuck Dixon, who, was, who had written The Punisher, what he thought, and he says, well, it's probably one of the largest symbols on any costume. It takes it's up scribble. his whole chest, but its, it's size is practical, as it acts as a target that's layered on top of high-impact armor plate. But that's the thing, like... Batman also, like, that was his claim that Frank Miller added, you know, in The Dark Knight Returns. So that's what I wonder, like, who claimed that first? Who says, I put this thing on my chest as a target on purpose?
0: The Batman symbol is so small, though. The fact that it covers, literally, it goes from his belly button all the way up to his neck. It's so outrageous. It's so over the top, just like The Punisher. And it works. It absolutely works. I have nothing bad to say about The Punisher. There have been some bad Punisher stories, but the character himself is great.
1: Yes. Now, number four is Wolverine because you can't keep Wolverine off any top 10 list for anything comics ever. Ever. Everybody loves him. Here's what I'll just say. They're they're talking specifically about his original yellow and blue incarnation, which I still think is just not great. I've never liked that color scheme. I've always much more been in favor of the the brown and kind of burnt orange look. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I think I prefer that style to this like this costume design has always been just a little too busy with me like specifically john romita senior who they ask about he says you know he designed the character back in the day for his first appearance he said he put the you know the claw marks and stuff on it in on purpose but that's what i think is just a little too much that that's where it takes it overboard for me
0: okay this is where the show is going to get a little raucous because i firmly disagree with you on this point i love the fact that the predators in nature tend to wear the brightest colors physically possible. So I love the fact that Wolverine comes out decked in yellow with the crazy headpiece that sort of mimics his hair, but his hair's not in there, I don't (laughs) think. Uh, Comic books are crazy, y'all. I I like the sharpness of it. I do like the fact that it's animalistic and wild, like tiger stripes. You know what? The brown and sort of burnt orange color never work for me. So uh, we are going to be bitter enemies as far as Wolverine's costume goes.
1: (laughs) There we are. Oh, it's on. All right, getting into our top three here, Ray. Hey, look who it is!
0: Hey, it's my guy. It's uh, uh Bruce himself, Batman. Look, like, like Eddie, Batman's not going to show up on an iconic uh, outfit list of all time. What is left to be said about the bat costume? There have been a thousand iterations on it, and every single one of them works—from Adam West's bright blue all the way to you know uh, the 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 metal bat suit. Even though I didn't think Ben Affleck was a great Batman, that bat suit in Batman versus Superman movie looked incredible. Uh, at the time, you know, when he has not as long as Spawn, but he has one of the longer capes and some of the Frank Miller uh, artwork that I've seen. I, look, it's Batman. It's Batman. You, you got to love it. It's Batman.
1: Yeah, no no argument. It's just it just is awesome. Now, number two, though, is Captain America. OK, yeah. and obviously, you know, he is patriotic. That's what he represents here. And so this is what uh, the current Captain America penciler this time, Ron Garney, had to say. It doesn't need to be altered. It's not dated. It's a symbol, much like the man himself. He represents America and Liberty. It's straightforward and to the point. Sometimes you have costumes on characters that gratuitously have other gadgetry, but this one is just him and his shield.
0: Yeah, it's look, this original Captain America outfit is a little busy. It is a little silly, but it also totally works and it totally works because Captain America is a little bit silly. Mr. Rogers is a little bit goofy. You know, he's a man out of time. Uh, He, you know, he fought the Nazis back in the day. And now he, you know, he's fighting Dr. Doom and like, it's great. He's great. Like, I can't say anything really bad about it, even though I probably should. But it's <laughs> it's been in my life too long for me to not look at that and be like, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, the only
1: thing I ever give Rob Liefeld credit for in terms of character design, in my opinion, is when he did Heroes Reborn, he took the A off the forehead and Smart. he just put an eagle on it, and I was like, "That right. makes sense. Why does he have an A on his forehead?" And uh, people didn't like that, but I—that's the only thing I liked. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know what? We agree on that, hundred percent. Yeah.
1: All right, and finally, number one, Ray. Who oh, gets sure. The spot?
0: You know, of course, it's Spider-Man. Spider-Man is maybe the most iconic superhero costume of all time. I mean, what is there left to say that hasn't been said a million times over? The coolest thing about Spider-Man is the fact that there's no skin revealed whatsoever, and so for decades and decades, anyone growing up anywhere in any uh uh, ethnicity could see themselves as spider-man swinging through the city and you know now they've taken it a little bit more with the miles morales the 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 gwen stacy stuff they've really sort of expanded upon that lore and mythos a little bit and i think it's awesome spider-man is a hero for everybody this costume uh with the webs and the blue and the red it's striking it's iconic and no notes no notes whatsoever
1: No, I mean, it's it's so beautiful. It's just wonderful to look at. Now, here's the thing, though, Ray. So this is who Wizard chose to praise, but they also couldn't help but throw some shade because that's what Wizard was known to do. They had to have the snark. So they offered up to us also big duds, the 10 superhero zoot suits that couldn't cut the mustard. And who is number one here on that list, Ray? This is
0: crazy to me. They put Superman number one, which, again, this is an all-time top five iconic superhero outfit. And I think they were just going for some weird clout here. They didn't like the original suit. They liked the newest one a little bit better. Uh, His red underpants on the outside. I mean, you know, whatever. This is what superheroes were back in the day. This is is a shout out to like original superhero comics and when they were first created. I have no problem. You know what? I want my Superman to have red underpants on the outside. There's just, there's something undeniably cool about Superman's outfit. I could not disagree harder
1: yeah that that one's a big one but the next one for people who thought that wizard was just in the pocket of image comics and todd McFarlane, they choose spawn That's and basically crazy. they just say he doesn't look like anything specific. I mean, I sort of get it. Like, hes they're saying he's not specific, but he's, like, one of the most popular characters just because of his visuals pretty yeah. much at
0: this time. So, like, I was buying Spawn comic books back in 1997. I went to the Motor City Comic Con dressed in an original superhero outfit that was brightly colored. And I met uh, Al Simmons, the original, the actual Al Simmons that Spawn was based off of. And he actually called me over to his booth. Like, he's like, go get that guy. I want to talk to him because I was dressed like a crazy person. (laughs) And he met me. He could not have been nicer. He said nice things to me about my insane outfit. And he gave me a free uh, Violator t-shirt and said, hey, man, I just want to let you know I love what you're doing. I say, I want to let you know I love what you're doing. Great job being an inspiration, Al. Uh, And so, no, I have nothing bad to say about Spawn. Okay, that original movie wasn't very good. Uh, that was back when CGI was still figuring it out, as we would like to say. <laughs> uh, but the spawn outfit with the obnoxiously long red cape, you know, spikes and chains when you need it. The the all black with the kind of the silver. I, it's great. Spawn's great. This is, again, 0 for 2, Wizard yep now next one here witchblade
1: and this is more of a joke because they're just saying uh what costume uh because basically yeah she just got the stuff that grows all over her covering up the naughty bits and that's about it we can move beyond it there you I'm go. not
0: wrong though witchblade is always to me at least witchblade's always been kind of a cringy character you know when you're in the comic book store if you're standing near a witchblade i feel like a little <laughs> pervy uh i've never been into it i may even own a few witchblade comics that i just picked up here and there but like I don't know, I feel real weird when I when I am around a Witchblade comic. Now, Ray, what about this next one here though? This I is crazy. This Gambit. They put Gambit here. What is he wear? What the hell is he wearing? A quasi superhero suit beneath a trench coat? Looks kind of neat, but like spawn nothing specific. Look, he's wearing battle armor under a trench coat and he's got a headband. Like, what more do you need, people? This is great. <laughs> I have n- I have absolutely nothing bad to say about that whatsoever I think Gambit's outfit, you put a trench coat on anybody, especially in the 90s, you're cool, I don't
1: yeah, that's how it worked, I mean, I will say it's, it's a little bit busy, it does seem like there's a lot of elements going on there, which I'm surprised they didn't point out, if you didn't yeah. wear the trench coat, you might be saying, what is going on here, but it covers up a lot of the busyness,
0: yeah, they could have done a little editing, okay, you're right, you're half right wizard, but like, you put a <laughs> trench coat on him, and everybody in the 90s loved trench coats
1: next one here is Nate Gray x-man and it's just they say he's like a bad 1980s mtv video nightmare somebody tossed this guy back into the duran duran video he walked out of i mean that's a real funny
0: take yeah
1: (laughs) but to me he's more just like exactly what 90s fashion was for guys you know like young teenage guys had that floppy hair parted in the middle that was the 90s right there i
0: did when i had hair i had floppy hair parted in the middle in the 90s i didn't have the gray streaks in the front Uh, And that jacket is something we would aspire to, but we would never actually own. Um, But that's what superheroes are all about. You know, I don't know. I'll give him I'll give him a half credit for this one, too. Uh, Their Duran Duran reference was pretty funny. You know what? Full point. Give him a full point for this one. Uh, Next up is Dr.
1: Strange. But they don't really even have anything yeah, to say. Sure. They're just like, there's something missing in his design, in their opinion. And I, again, he's got everything going on in his design. He's got the the Reed Richards white hair. He's got the the big you know collar on his cape and everything. I mean, he's got a lot going on.
0: He does have a lot going on, but like, he got a big red flowing cape, but a special kind of like big collar cape. That's what set him different. And I don't know. I you take he he does. He takes elements from about three to five other heroes and you kind of tack them all together. Uh, I I still like the look of him. You know, he reminds me of that Mandrake, the magician. But like, he's kind of got that vibe of an old-timey stage magician. And I always thought that was kind of cool
1: when I was a kid. Now, Daredevil, they're saying it's cool, sleek, simple... But too simple. So they felt like he needed a little something extra to make it flashy. And they tried that. They put him in armor and nobody liked it. You just made fun of it, Wizard. So mm, I don't know. I don't think you're quite staying consistent here.
0: It's weird because they had a lot of praise for, say, the Punisher's outfit, which is literally just a black jumpsuit with a white skull on it. And here's Daredevil, who they put the horns on. I think if the horns aren't there, then they have a point to make. But uh, he wears all red. He's got the DD on his chest. I'm fine with that. Although, you know, every time when I, I'd be like, man, why is he wearing drunk driving on his chest? That's a totally different <laughs> thing. Uh, but he's got the horns. He's got the baton all red. I'm fine with it. It's a little too mi- minimal, maybe. Maybe. But, you know, I'm, I don't think this is a fashion nightmare by any stretch of the imagination. I would just say
1: my criticism
0: would be too
1: literal. We get it. You're Daredevil. Right. You don't need to right. be a devil. But even I guess, Mephisto, no, Even yeah. Mephisto
0: uses different colors in his outfit. <laughs> Alright, Ray, give us the next
1: two here. Oh, uh, you're going
0: to make me do this, huh? Deadpool, yeah. a wisecracking athlete dressed mostly in red who often finds himself in conflict with the law. Sorry, the list was for the ten best designed costumes, not the most embarrassing Spidey Xeroxes. Ooh. Look, there's there's a point to be made there. Deadpool is obviously a ripoff of both uh, Spider-Man and Snake Eyes uh, from G.I. Joe. If you were to combine those two characters' uh, essences together, you would get Deadpool, and that's fine. Look, uh, he's a great character. It's the personality that puts it over. You, c- If you have the right personality attached, You can essentially Xerox whatever the heck you want to. A Xerox for the kids at home is a copying machine that people used to use at work. And some very rich people had one at home. And we still don't know how that worked because toner would run out every three days and you'd have to go drop 40 bucks to get new toner. Anyway, (laughs) Deadpool is, look, Deadpool's iconic. I'm so happy those movies came out and did very, very well. So everybody knows who Deadpool is now outside of we nerds. And who's next here, Ray? To stick cable. It with cable, they're they're dead accurate about cable. Uh, they hold this guy responsible to shift away from hero costumes and into the doesn't take much skill, militaristic character design. He does look like uh, somebody straight out of the pages of G.I. Joe Extreme. Uh, There's too much going on with Cable, uh, nothing to really point to, and just too many choices. Again, editing here probably would have helped. I find no fault in their putting Cable on this list. And finally, Moon Boy. he's
1: a monkey that rides a dinosaur, and he's naked. So there you go. Woo, what a journey. Now, let's get back into some of the, the more meaty parts of this issue here, Ray, because DC Comics executive editor Mike Carlin is the subject of the Wizard Q&A this issue. Having overseen the massive Death of Superman event as well as the recent DC vs. Marvel crossover, Carlin describes his role saying, quote, I guess I'm a cheerleader? The glue? A referee? Ultimately, my job is to steer the DC Universe cruise ship through interesting waters without sinking the ship. It boils down to not wanting every room on the cruise ship to have the same decor. I wanted to encourage the guys to do weird stuff that's never been seen before, and that they're excited about because that's how the readers get excited too. So really stretching that cruise ship metaphor. Yeah. And Ray, I know you and uh, your your co-hosts on your podcast have worked in writer's room, various TV shows, video games, things like that. And with sure. your share of cruise directors, uh, does Mike Carlin strike you as the kind of guy you'd like to work under?
0: It's tough because they all say the same things uh they all come from sort of the same school of thought as far as middle managers go and producers <laughs> go and you never know until you get into the room honestly uh this sounds a little bit nightmarish to me somebody who would describe a terms in these ways is somebody who's trying too hard to project an image and uh my first inclination would be don't trust them now it could very well be this is just who he is i don't actually know and i want somebody who appreciates the weird to be the one leading my project 100% because I'm going to take it somewhere wild. Uh, that's just going to happen. But somebody who comes out the bat and says, we do things a little weird around here, uh, <laughs> terrifies me. Straight out, I've, I've been around too many of those people and had it be just awful.
1: Okay, well, now the other thing that he mentions here, uh, you know, he's talking about uh, trying to appease you know, the old readers, how they get mad every time that you change a character, or you kill someone off or whatever. But then he of goes into the flip side of the discussion. Wizard asks if the industry is failing to bring in new readers by trying to please the old ones, to which Carlin replies, quote, the bottom line is that the comic shops aren't going to order those comics in bulk, even though they say they want them because kids aren't coming into comic shops anymore. The shop's problem is that you already have to be inclined to go into the shop to find comics. The newsstand distribution system has to be the answer of some kind for younger readers. So at this point... In time, you know, just five years later after this huge boom, nobody's going to comic book stores, especially not younger kids. And so in, in this day and age, especially, where could you find a comic? If They're over by the Pokemon and sports cards at Walmart, packed mm-hmm. in plastic. You can't even see what you're getting half the time. And it's it's a crazy situation we're in. So I kind of ask you, Ray, is the idea of the American superhero comic just a relic that's kind of kept alive by those of us who experienced the 90s boom? What do you think?
0: Oh, that's super, super interesting to me because, uh, uh, look, I, I, I'm glad comic books are still alive. I, I have no notion as to the health of the industry. It always feels like every time I turn around, somebody's publishing something about the death of the comic book industry. But I think as long as people want stories, people want heroes, people want something bright and fun and dark and brooding, you know? Uh, as long as as long as long there's people out there uh, who want entertainment, I think comics will always have a place Uh, It might not be the forefront. You know, it might be an under-the-radar type of entertainment. I personally believe it's always going to be there. And it's crazy because, you know, this is over 25 years ago, and people are still saying the same things, and comic book stores still exist. So something must be happening right I
1: think there is some potential there but I also feel like today's kids are so used to like just like getting so much content coming in all the time at their fingertips that the idea is antiquated of every month you get a new you know 25 pages or whatever of a comic that you care about a character you want to read the story like you were talking about you know the trade paperbacks most people just yeah. want to wait get it all in one like I it, do I'm guilty it's, I mean it's just how it works for a lot of people and I think also it's interesting because my daughter, you know, she's seven turning eight this month and she is in a situation where she tells me, I don't like comics. And then I I look at all the books that she's reading and checking out from the library and like half of them are just comics they're little like cute characters with word balloons in action poses having stories and so it's it's the idea of superhero comics that is offensive to her and uh, my oldest son would rather play video games and watch youtube than read the comics my youngest he's four we'll see where we fall on that but anyway it's just you always want to pull them in but more and more anything print media that's just a hard sell even in digital form well yeah it's just scanned print media you know
0: Yeah, comic books slap different than the digital form i've tried to do the comic And sorry if they're a sponsor, but I just have a hard time, you know, especially because my phone is so small. Yeah, (laughs) you know, and I don't own an iPad. So maybe that would be the ideal way to do it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. There's something about turning the pages. There's something about holding it in your hands something about the, the actual raw print and maybe that's we're just relics of a bygone age and it's eventually all going to go digital. I, I hope it doesn't because there's something real there. Getting
1: into maybe a different realm that has always been kind of, you know, on the underground side of things, there is a two-page interview in this issue with an indie creator named Alex Robinson about his black and white comic called Box Office Poison. And Wizard touts this title as, quote, bridging the gap between the comics industry and the real world. They are clearly trying tried to be there at the possible start of a new genre. They keep mentioning it as real world comics. And Wizard even goes so far as to assume, quote, you probably know the stars of Box Office Poison already. (laughs) You know, like, quote, Sherman, the neurotic bookstore clerk who wants to be a writer, or Ed, the chubby wannabe comics artist who'd sell his soul for a date. Obviously, right, very compelling characters. They aren't just like every guy you met in a college creative writing class. Right, yeah. (laughs) Now, remember what we said about white guys and their fetishes translated to the comics page? So here's a quick overview of a scene from the book used as a selling point in this article. Quote, Sherman finds a beautiful party goer who somehow managed to get her knees caught in the railing. After greasing her up and pulling her legs free, the two naturally end up sprawled atop one another. By the end of the first issue, they've spent the first of many romantic and erotic evenings together. Oh, God. (laughs) Ray, do you like paying for comics that are the equivalent of hanging out with your friends and hearing them tell stories of their sexual escapades that may or may not have happened?
0: (laughs) Yeah, if hell exists, this is what it is. Um, This sounds absolutely dreadful. Uh, Everything from, you know, uh, getting stuck uh, adult material. Are you kidding me right now? That's embarrassing. Everything about this is cringe. No, I don't want this. I don't even mind it when stories are in comics are grounded in reality, but it's a comic. Something fantastic has to happen, right? Somebody has to do something that you don't see. Otherwise, why am I buying this comic book? Why? I'm here to take a journey. I'm not here to hang out with my friends no, no to this, 100%. Yeah, you know, they mentioned
1: bridging the gap there, and our next subject here is something about someone who did I think manage to do that successfully, because we don't usually cover the Palmer's pick section of the magazine, which is covering indie comics, but in this issue, we have the first mention of Ed Brubaker in Wizard Magazine, and at this time, the future writer of Daredevil and Captain America was known for having written and drawn his semi-autobiographical comic Low Life, and was launching an ongoing series called Detour, which will contain Saying, quote, bittersweet memoirs about life in the 70s that all involve comics somehow. And says Baker of his start in the medium, quote, one of my earliest memories was my dad plopping down a big stack of comics he'd gotten from some friends at the office. I'm a little turned off by how cynical and dismissive most alternative cartoonists are about the stuff they actually grew up reading. And of course, he goes on to have a huge influence in mainstream comics and to this day, is there a big Ed Brubaker series or arc that you like there, Ray?
0: It's funny you say that because I uh, looking through for- through the titles to prepare for this uh, you know I, I must have read some of his work you know in the, in the Batmans of the world uh the X-Men Daredevil Captain America there's no doubt that I've crossed paths with this without even really realizing it was him when you said his name though the one that really jumped out at me was Fatal uh Fatal is a series that I did get into uh, read the first few issues of and generally enjoyed it. A different kind of storytelling. It's so crazy because I'm sure not, nobody thinks of Fatal when they think of Ed Brewbreaker, but that's my go-to uh, reference for him.
1: It's funny, I literally was just flipping through a back issue bin this week and saw some issues of Fatala there. I was like, oh, I didn't know about this. He's most known for creating the Winter Soldier character, which became the basis for what is arguably the best Marvel movie. And speaking of comics to screen, Ray, let's check out the entertainment rumors of the day with Heroes in Motion. Gotta love it. All right. So David Hasselhoff Ray has been cast as the first live-action Nick Fury in a primetime TV yes. movie written by David Goyer that will be premiering on the Fox Network. Now the budget was reportedly more than six million dollars, and Where the stars quoted as saying, "quote We went with the eye patch in history to try and capture the depth of the character." But ironically, as the husband of an optometrist, I can tell you that Fury would actually have no depth perception. That is, ah. Uh, Kill me. Aww. Uh, on account Tell of the eye patch, Anyway, <laughs> the Hoffs co-star Lisa Ritta remarks, quote, Doesn't he just look like Nick Fury? I think we're very faithful, and the story comes directly out of the comics. Now, the idea of Lisa Ritta reading a comic book, let alone a Nick Fury comic wow. while poolside as she soaks up some California sunshine in order to have any frame of reference for that statement, it just cracks me up. I mean... <laughs>
0: She's That's authority. one. It's one worth seeking out. If you, I, I've seen the David Hasselhoff Nick Fury movie back in the day on I think the USA Network, and I'll tell you, ba- as far as like look goes, original comic book Nick Fury, he looked exactly like comic book Nick Fury. They nailed that one hundred percent. Now the problem is when you try to introduce a character with grit and depth, and you cast David Hasselhoff in that role, a, a an actor not necessarily known for his ability to convey depth. Uh, it it is a, it is a wild movie. It is a B movie. I can't believe it. They, Six million dollars feels like again. I where did that money go? I'll say it right now. That went up somebody's nose. That did not make it onto the screen um it is, it is it's a movie that feels it feels like you're watching an episode of baywatch that's the production quality of that movie quite honestly it's tv level production and we're talking 90s tv level production not what game of thrones can do today which is movie quality right it's not great
1: we've, we've devoted an entire episode to the generation x tv movie which came out before okay. this which i love to death i i can recognize its flaws but it is much more entertaining than this version like you say it's a b movie it's just kind of like you don't buy hasselhoff as the grizzled tough guy but See, either gonna... way they tried now they kept trying though ray they wanted a ghost animated series because the character had appeared on two episodes of the incredible hulk cartoon voiced by richard Greco. how about that wow <laughs> which makes it his second most memorable role of the 90s next to his cameo in a night at the roxbury
0: <laughs> yeah
1: now, right. writer Larry Brody states, quote, it might wind up being direct to video. There's some very diabolical elements and you can't have devils on Saturday morning television. I'm not sure you can have a flaming skull either. So <laughs> with those two strikes against it, the animated Ghost Rider never happens. But Toy Biz does release a line of action figures inspired by the character anyway. So, Ray, where does Ghost Rider rank for you in the pantheon of Marvel heroes?
0: I think Ghost Rider is a wonderful supporting character. Maybe that's controversial. I think he's a guy that you bring in to uh, run a story arc around, but not as the featured person in it. Uh, I think Ghost Rider is a character. It's hard for him to carry the load of a narrative. He really needs to be sort of the uh, irresistible force that exists in a narrative. I kind of feel the same way about the incredible Hulk as well, is that he works better as a side character. That's why we haven't had an original Hulk movie since those first two that honestly, like nobody really likes those two Hulk movies. They're, they're kind of slow because you have to base, you can't base it around Hulk. You have to base it around Bruce Banner, who is a relatively boring character. And then they surrounded him with other boring characters. Jennifer Connelly is just Bruce Banner as a lady boring scientist, and it just doesn't work until Nick Nolte starts chewing all of the scenery. (laughs) So I I like Ghost Rider. I thought Ghost Rider, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show, when they did the Robbie Reyes season, and sort of used him as that irresistible force that they were working with, but he didn't have to carry the load. uh, They let the team do that. I thought that was some of the most effective Ghost Rider storytelling that I've seen.
1: Agreed. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, Jim Kruger, who is a guy who will eventually team with Alex Ross to write the Earth X series for Marvel. Marvel, is at this time of development talks with Batman executive producer Michael Usland to adapt his comic Foot Soldiers into an animated feature. Now, I was unfamiliar with this Dark Horse Comics release. Eventually, it moves to Image, apparently. But according to this report, it's, quote, a dark story set in the future where three teenagers assume the powers of dead heroes and battle the ruling authority. But the origin of this partnership is what's hilarious to me, because it's stated that, quote, Kruger and Uslan met at a bus station after a toy fair two and a half years ago, and they began sharing their affinity for old Johnny Quest cartoons. Of course, Foot Soldiers never gets adapted, but the bus station memories will live on forever, Ray. So I must ask you, how many friends have you made talking about old cartoons at the local bus station?
0: Yeah, I haven't spent a lot of time hanging around local bus stations. I gotta be (laughs) honest with you, that's just not a... Not a place I frequent. Uh, I will say from talking about old cartoons uh, on a podcast, I have made all kinds of new friends and long lasting lifetime uh, uh, friendships. So that is something that I could proudly say. If the podcast is the new local bus station of this generation, then the answer is several.
1: (laughs) Now, it's
0: reported that
1: *Wade's World star Tia Carrera is interested in playing Billy Tucci's kabuki samurai warrior, She, in a live-action adaptation. As a result, Carrera has posed for a photo cover of the She comic and will be appearing at the Crusade Comics booth at San Diego Comic-Con in 1997 to sign it for the fans. Now, Ray, I was there.
0: Oh my god. It had a okay. very
1: embarrassing interaction with Tia oh, no. that evolved my friend's mother as Tia was trying to go on break. Oh, She's like, no. Tia, you have to sign this. He's your biggest fan. And she was just like yelling, yelling at her till she relented. Thank you, Tia. And it was just like,
0: oh, we we're just like, Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, that it is... was bad news. Tia Carrera, I think, should have maybe been a slightly bigger star. I don't know what happened with that. I think the problem was at this time
1: in this issue, they were advertising for Cull the Conqueror, where she was the villain in that. And I think that started the downward trajectory. But <laughs> uh, if I will say for those who want more details on why the movie never happened, you can check out the episode of The Wizard Files where we actually talked to Billy Tucci all about his unproduced film project and many more things. So you can That's check great. that out. This issue also features the behind the scenes coverage on the live action Spawn movie from New Line Cinema. We'll be talking more in depth about that on our Patreon this month when we review the film as part of our 90s super cinema series. So if you're interested in that conversation, join the Heroes of Motion tier, get that bonus podcast. Plus you get a full scan of the issues and everything that you want uh, each episode. Uh, of course, uh, you'll also want to watch our video talking to two Spawn collectors who share some very rare collectibles. Uh, but Ray, quick thoughts. Spawn the movie, you mentioned it earlier with the CGI and all that. Did you see it in theaters?
0: I did. I did see Spawn in theaters back in the day. Uh, the The problem is that they, they leaned too heavily on the CGI. I think it's a thing that Marvel does a wonderful job of now is letting us look at people and let the people tell stories about who they are and what they're doing. And the CGI backs it up. Spawn was special effects forward characters uh, under And so some of those fight scenes, they're just moving by. The CGI isn't great. You know, they still haven't figured it quite out yet. And the whole screen is nothing but CGI for minutes at a time. And it's hard for my eyes to track and follow what's happening, much less have any emotional connection to it.
1: Yeah, it's it's a little rough. Uh, But finally here, Ray, it's reported that Batman and Robin was the number one film at the box office during its opening weekend, earning $43.6 million, beating out the original 1989 Tim Burton film. Crazy. Earning less than the previous entries, Batman Forever and Batman Returns. However, Batman and Robin was left in the dust by 1997's top grocer, Jurassic Park The Lost World, which earned a whopping $204.9 million. Wow. So we Crazy. have to ask though, Ray, would you rather watch Batman and Robin or Jurassic Park The Lost World?
0: You know, I can officially say I've I've watched Jurassic Park The Lost World recently for the first time. And I've never actually sat down for Batman and Robin Batman Whoa. forever. I saw in theaters and it's, it was starting to lose me. And then when people started telling me what Batman and Robin was, I was like, that is not a movie for me. That is not a movie. I think I would like to sit down at. And I, I made the right decision. So I would say I would watch the Jurassic park movie, not as terrible as Batman and Robin that's for sure.
1: Wow, see now this is where we're opposed because mm. Jurassic Park the Lost World, I have it on VHS, I have it on Blu-ray, I have it on DVD. I don't I only have it to be part of the trilogy. I watch it never. It is so bad. E- even Jeff Goldblum can't save it. But Batman and Robin is so goofy that I can go back to it and Rough. still find a few laughs here and there. So, despite the lower earnings, it's still rumored that a fifth Batman film would feature Harley Quinn with Madonna being eyed for the role and Jack Nicholson returning as the Joker in hallucinogenic scenes induced by the Scarecrow, who would be the main villain. Now, I find it hilarious that Lady Gaga, who is the modern-day Madonna, is yes. now playing Harley Quinn in the Joker sequel. So there you go.
0: Obvious, obvious go-to's, you know. And and I don't know. I I did not. I'm one of the rare people. I maybe not rare. I did not care for this new Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix. I thought it was boring i thought nothing happened in this movie it's a character study about somebody i don't want to know about and so the, if, if you're not if i'm not interested in this person and what they're going through you lose me i mean like there's nothing else in this movie for me right and so as he's going through the crying scene with uh, wayne in the bathroom as he's at the front gate of wayne manor as he's having his fit with robert de niro on the tv show and all this i was just bored senseless i did not care about him I don't know if I'm going to see the second one.
1: Wow. Okay. I don't know. I know for me, I, I'm a fan of the uh, more unique individuals in society and, and represented on screen. So it, it appealed to me in that way. But interesting. You, while we're on the topic of Batman and Robin, you know, the wizard staff decided to have a little fun with that movie in their signature snarky style. So let's check out Turok's top 10. Ray, so what we have here, the top 10 action figures inspired by the film Batman and Robin. These are not the actual action figures being uh, produced by Kenner. These are (laughs) Wizards ideas.
0: These are gags. This is a top 10 David Letterman style list here.
1: Correct. So starting out here, number 10 is Sweating Batman and Fainting Robin,
0: Extra Heavy Rubber Costume Deluxe Playset. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. Let's see, number (laughs) nine, Alicia Silverstone. In split seam Batgirl outfit with real cake eating action. I would, uh, buy that.
1: I would probably buy Wizard, that. come on, no fat shaving here. Number eight, Cold Miser, Heat Miser two pack. Huh? I guess just because Mr. Freeze.
0: Yeah, you gotta love the old Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer yeah. uh, references. Go for it. Uh, number seven, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mr. Freeze with real fur bear slippers voice chip full of distractingly bad one-liners and real my god and i thought my career was over after jingle all the way facial expression (laughs) i mean
1: they're they're, they're throwing bricks here number six talking bane with voice chip containing real movie
0: dialogue like bomb exit and stop pinching me mr schumacher (laughs) i see what you're doing there wizard number five dying alfred with overflowing bedpan action now we're doing poop and pee jokes wizard come on (laughs) Uh, oh, and it dude. doesn't get any better.
1: Number yep. four, vomiting moviegoers playset with, I don't care if it's not over, we're leaving.
0: And give me back my 750 audio activators. How about that? <laughs> Movies being 750. Imagine that world. Uh, oh. Number three, butt check Batman and Rump Display Robin with opening credits, getting into costume action. Still one of the most baffling sequences that I, I've seen in clips. I haven't seen the movie, but I have oh. seen enough clips. I feel like I've seen the movie. <laughs> and the fact that that's, in the movie tells you where joel schumacher's going with it
1: yes oh and number two a returning character for batman and robin gossip gertie with
0: built-in m80 so you could get her to shut the hell up <laughs> love it and number one oh i love this a nicholas cage superman hey since schumacher just killed the bat franchise we should start thinking about soups anyway superman a uh, nicholas cage of superman i wish that movie I, I, at the time i was like i hope this movie never gets made as we sit here years later I say, God dang it, I wish that movie had been made. It would have been a real trip. I still think, given the the meta, uh, what do you call it, the, the multiverse in both DC and Marvel, there's a world where we could see Nicolas Cage. How about this, though? Not as Superman but in the MCU as Hyperion of Squadron Supreme Ooh, that would that would tickle me
1: yeah uh, well Ray this has been so much fun uh, thank you for joining us making the time I want you to tell us where people can find you online but I gotta ask first off with your Who Would Win podcast you know Wizard ran a feature for many years called Last Man Standing where they were pitting characters from different franchises against each other exactly like you do on the podcast was there any inspiration there to your knowledge with you and your co-host james
0: uh not directly but let's face it wizard magazine was very influential and i would say the idea of who would win in a fight between blank and blank has been since day one of comic books uh, superhero comics especially it's been on everybody's mind it's a constant conversation we're not reinventing the wheel with the who would win show but we are putting our own unique spin on it uh, and, and having a full on debate, three points, points, counterpoints with guest celebrity judges every single week to determine who would be a winner. Because many times the conversation is had, but nobody ever actually decides.
1: Yes. And it's a very, very fun show, guys. Uh, you, you definitely should check that out. But why don't you also tell them a
0: little bit about Knowing is Half the Podcast. You got it. I do a couple other shows. Knowing is Half the Podcast uh, needs your listens. You could check it out. It's a saucy, uh, uh, vulgar uh, take on 80s and 90s cartoons we, we stretch it a little bit but that's what we focus on focus primarily on G.I. Joe we're now in season seven of the show so we've done original real American hero we've done Deke era G.I. Joe uh, from the 90s we've done G.I. Joe extreme uh, which came later for 26 episodes and now we've moved on after a few of the one-off movies valor versus venom ninja battles uh, spy troops and now we're in G.I. Joe Sigma 6, which is from 2005, and says, what if G.I. Joe was an anime? And so it's uh, it's 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 literally, and I said this on the show, but it's literally exactly what I thought it was going to be. It is what if G.I. Joe was an anime with all the pluses and all the minuses that that means. So it's all the warts are still there of anime. They didn't, like, uh, clean any of it up. It is all there for you if that's the kind of thing you would like. But uh, besides that, we've watched other... Uh, 80s and 90s cartoons. We do holiday specials. We've watched basically everything. Uh, over the course of doing the show, for years and years and years, we, we, we've stretched out beyond G.I. Joe to basically every other cartoon that you could possibly think of, leaning into the terrible ones when possible. Yes, that's right. Like Kissy Fur, The Little Clouds of Happy Kissy Town. Fur. Oh my God. Oh. Yeah, that was... listen you're bringing back some painful memories for me right now uh Uh, we just did the uh with the family circus uh from like 1981 or something the easter special and that was an experience i would like to not have had um it is if you like hearing people get tortured about uh cartoons and trying to have fun with them that's what knowing us Half the podcast is all about if you want epic breakdowns we do do that from time to time we've had interviews like you said with buzz dixon Flint Dilly, we had the head writer of uh, Dekeera GI Joe, uh, who was brave enough to come on and face us when we did not like Dekeera GI Joe, but he was so kind and so wonderful, and it was nice hearing. Uh, where he was coming from when he was making that show. Uh, you know, uh, Christy Marks, we've had Julia Lewald come on uh, from the X-Men, as I referenced earlier. Uh, we, You know, we got lots of people coming on and having fun with us, and and we're, we're just so blessed to be able to still keep doing it. Uh, yeah. The other thing I want to mention before we get out of here, though, is uh, my vampire show, which is the big one that needs listeners. <laughs> and you can go to Vampire Detroit for that. I wrote a Vampire the Masquerade audio drama. Currently, there are five episodes out with eight more to come this year. So we've got like kind of the prologue to the story and then chapter one will continue hopefully this summer and we're writing it. We're putting it together right now, getting more voice actors on board. If you like uh, radio plays, if you like audio dramas, uh, you don't have to necessarily know the world of vampire, the masquerade, but it will help you if you did. Uh, I, I think it's great. You know, we're on YouTube. You can look up reclaimed Detroit, a vampire, the masquerade audio drama. That's the official name, but easy way to find it. Just go to vampiredetroit.com or find uh, vampire Detroit on Twitter. At Vampire Detroit. And I would love it if you would check it out. I put a lot of hard work into it. And this is like my pet project that's been decades in the making. And I'm just so happy that it exists.
1: And Ray, if they want to continue the conversation with you on social media, where can they find you?
0: You can find me on Twitter at Almighty Ray. That's going to be the best place to find me short of coming out and hanging out in my backyard, uh, which I do not suggest under any circumstances.
1: (laughs) Well, again, thanks, Ray, so much for joining us.
0: Hey, Adam, this has been great. I really appreciate you having us on. Us being me, I take up multiple seats. I wear multiple hats. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This was a blast and we'll come back soon. And thank you for listening. Hey,
1: so if you want to stay in touch with Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, find us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Hey, if you want to take it to the next level, head over to Patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics. Get all the perks of becoming an official geek. And speaking of perks, one of those is that you get a shout out on our main episodes. We got some new kids on the block that have joined up with the Patreon the last few weeks. So first. Let's shout out to Fernando Pinto. Thank you so much for being a part of the crew. Hey, Jeremy Daw, loving your comments over there. Greg Schuler, rock on, buddy. But of course, we've got the old standbys. Beltface Killer, Brian Acosta, Joe Marcello, Steve King, Mark Quill, Gabe Bustamantez, Denim Jedi, Mitchell Hall, Lee Markowitz, Stephen Forshaw, Mickey and Jason at the Retro Network, and finally, Mark McDonald. Thanks again, guys, for your contributions and helping make the show run more smoothly and help us have a little bit more fun with you. Of course check out the YouTube channel get subscribed over there and hey until next time keep your books bagged and boarded. Wait a minute geeks where do you think you're going? Here's the thing Ray had a heart out so we had to wind up the show which meant that we didn't have time for the one segment I know that you look forward to every episode. So it's time that we rev up Jim and Todd's hype machine. Okay, so as I mentioned previously in the episode, this issue features 16 pages of behind-the-scenes spawn movie coverage, which really did give Todd McFarlane a huge advantage if I counted every time his name was mentioned in the issue, but as we cover it, it really only goes into okay, each section. How many times is his name mentioned? So let me start out with some Jim Lee news, then we'll circle back to Todd. Uh, so the first thing that they're mentioning here is Lee's Heroes Reborn tenure extended to 13 issues well they already covered that in the previous issue so i don't know why they decided to do that again other than to tell you that james robinson is writing all of those 13th issues for all the heroes reborn titles and then you have artists like ron Lim, mike ryan mike Waringo, and larry stroman coming on to provide the art duties uh but yeah it was kind of interesting here because they asked jim lee so when the 13th issues finally come to a close what will happen to this brand new pocket pocket universe As far as I know, there are no plans to destroy it, said Lee. Since it won't have an impact on the Heroes Return storyline, it's being set up so it could possibly be revisited in the future. I don't think that ever happens, uh, but if someone knows different, let us know. Now the other side of things, this is another follow-up because what did they tell us? Jim Lee is going to be editing a handful of Marvel titles after the Heroes Return stuff happens, and these were Defenders, Doctor Strange, and Nick Fury, but now they're reporting that the Punisher might be added which many of you know that Jim Lee was the artist on Punisher that was his one of his first big assignments at Marvel now here's what he says he's going to do though if that takes place quote I've been toying with the idea of doing a female Punisher Lee said and that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of things Lee is going to change remember when the Punisher killed Nick Fury well there's more to it I I wasn't aware of that the Punisher killed Nick Fury but Jim Lee says here quote Nick Fury faked his death and the Punisher was in on it It. That's part of the reason that Frank Castle is no longer the Punisher. Huh? So that's just kind of crazy to me. Basically, he's saying, quote, Fury will lead into the new Punisher and Strange will lead into the formation of defenders, both of which should start in December. But as far as we know, this never did happen. So again, if you have any other evidence where Ghibli's influence was felt on these Marvel titles, I'd love to hear about it, because it would have been fascinating if that's how things carried forward. All right, now getting to Todd on the set of Spawn. Here's the thing, we're going to be talking all about this in our Spawn movie review as part of the Heroes in Motion tier, 90s super cinema, bonus podcast series, but I'm sure we won't get to all of it. So let me just share a few fun tidbits from this section that really stood out to me. Alright, so the first piece here is this behind the scenes diary, basically that is giving an idea of what it was like when Todd would visit the set of the Spawn movie? 105 p.m. McFarlane is sidetracked by a construction worker who brings him into the office for some autographs. The office is like a Spawn shrine with every issue of the comic series ringed around the walls. Fortunately, McFarlane is prepared with a gold pen for the many signing requests he gets around the set. Quote, See how it's the same signature on the toy box, he says, pointing the pen to the McFarlane toys logo in the corner? People understand that. Before leaving, McFarlane asks if he can grab a couple of pieces of chewing gum out of a jar of the office. The crew members delighted with their autographs cheerfully oblige. Okay, so McFarland was constantly being recognized and being asked for autographs which I don't know if that has more to do with the idea of the, you know, we're making a movie so everybody obviously knows who he is or if it was just random people on the set too that were just kind of like, hey, uh, that guy's Todd McFarlane. What's he doing here making a movie? Anyway, so when they get into another section here, which is called I Was a Spawn Movie Extra, there's this guy, Jason A. Hartner, who is a 22-year-old comic addict trying to make a humble living in the entertainment industry. That's how he described himself. And so he was actually able to play one of the display. Placed people. Yes, one of the homeless in the alley uh, where Spawn was hanging out. And so, what's interesting is that we have a picture of him with Todd McFarlane at a side issue of Spawn, and here's how he said that went down. Quote, I spent several days laying in an alley in a puddle of water looking like a bum. Then on my eighth day, the unfathomable moment comes. We're on a lunch break and I am peeling back the wrapper of a Milky Way when I see a guy who looks like Todd McFarlane standing by the food truck. He looks a little shorter and scruffier than I Perspective, but I'm pretty sure it's him. I descend upon him and sure enough, it's McFarlane! I start asking him all sorts of fanboy questions and he's actually incredibly laid back and incredibly nice. Whatever I ask, he doesn't give me some sorry, that's secret information answer. He spills all the dirt on the Spawn comic, the HBO animated series, and his upcoming toy lines. We eat lunch together and talk for about half an hour. He definitely didn't come across like Million Dollar McFarlane. He just seemed like a nice, regular guy. Isn't that awesome? I mean, you just love to hear it that Todd knew how to treat the fans wherever they approached him you know you might think he's stressed out over having to see how this movie comes out he's wanting to have a thumb on everything and he could spend a half hour with one of the extras having lunch talking comics and signing comics like that's fantastic but let's get to the final count here now in this issue jim lee mentioned just three times that includes like those two articles that we mentioned in wizard news and then uh divine right a couple ads for that and that was it. Whereas Todd obviously mentioned more in theory, but he actually only had four separate mentions. So that brings our running total to Jim Lee, 430 mentions, Todd McFarlane, 419. So we will see how it continues on. But hey, geeks, thanks so much for sticking around for this little bit of extra fun. And until next time, well, you know.